If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And we will once again be reading uh, the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6. So we will be reading verse 20 all the way through verse 26. Although again, it is not my intent to cover all of those verses this evening. And once you're there in your Bibles, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from starting in verse 20. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. The title of our study tonight is Future Hope, Present Joy. Future Hope, Present Joy. And it has to do with uh, those second two beatitude or blessing statements that we did not have a chance to cover last week. You remember last week we read verse 20 and verse 21. Uh, blessed are you who are poor and blessed are you who are hungry. And it is our intent this week to get through those second two blessing statements. Blessed are you who weep and blessed are you when people hate you. So future hope, present joy. And I just want to recap quickly uh, some of the key uh, things that we laid down last week so we can uh, pick up where we left off and kind of pull that context into where we're at tonight. Uh, The first thing I would like to remind you of is the term blessed is one of the key interpretive difficulties in the text. Depending on how you take that term, you could either misinterpret or correctly interpret this passage. Uh, A blessed person is not referring to someone who can curry favor with God. It is not as though if you become poor, you become blessed. It is not as though if you starve yourself and become hungry, you become blessed. A blessed person is not someone who garners favor with God. A blessed person is someone who is manifestly living in the favor of God. It's an expression of current state of being, not an expression of something that you can earn or something you could obtain by your actions. And that's an important thing for us to note Because if we take these terms, blessedness, as something uh, that has favor with God, we would be saying something to the effect of, we have favor with God when we are poor. But rather, what we're saying is, the people who are poor have a state of favor with God because of the coming kingdom that they are going to obtain, and so on and so forth. And so we need to correctly understand what that term blessed means in order to understand these verses correctly. And what Jesus is saying otherwise would be unintelligible. The second thing that I would like to point out, uh, the stuff that we laid down last week, is the idea of a, of a present situation or a present circumstance is not to be compared with a, with a non-reality of a future coming circumstance. 
So to put that uh, down on the ground, we saw last week, for example, that there's a group of people who are considered hungry now, and we're told that in the future at some point, they will or they shall be satisfied. And so there's a difference between the current circumstance and the future reality. And it's because of the future reality that we can declare someone as blessed. And so it's not looking at a current circumstance, it's looking at a future coming reality in which we take that determination. And you'll see that same kind of idea repeated this week in verses 21b and 22, uh, when we see that uh, there's, a, there's a now and then statement. There's a, there's a current situation and a future reality statement. And so hence why we draw the, the title or the summary statement of these verses as a future hope, which leads to a present joy. If we did not have a future hope, there would be no sum and substance of a present joy that we could have. So if you look with me at the verses, we will just start again in verse 21, the second line in verse 21, and we're just going to read that together and break it down. It says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now again, you see that now then kind of wording, that now then language. So we're told by Jesus that there's a group of people who are going to be considered blessed or are considered blessed now because of their status or their condition of weeping. And not because they weep, but because at some point in the future, they will have the ability to laugh. That they will ultimately be vindicated, that they will ultimately be able to laugh. So those who are weeping now are able to have a blessed, stay, a blessed stance or a blessed circumstance because of the future reality. Now then the question for us to interpret is, what does it mean when he says weeping? What's that all about? And if you remember last week, I said that in Matthew's gospel, he has the Beatitudes as well. And in Matthew's gospel, the closest we could get to this kind of Beatitude statement would be the statement is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in Matthew's Beatitudes, that's the second one on the list, whereas in Luke's, this would be the third Beatitude listed. And the question is, uh, are Matthew and Luke using the same terminology? Are these just separately recorded uh, statements of blessing that are being recorded? And either is possible. Because what Luke means when he says weep is something to the effect of mourning, but it also carries with it a deeper kind of sorrow and a different kind of connotation. Because weeping is an external kind of mourning. Someone who weeps is someone who is externally manifesting their brokenness, their mourning, their uh, their discomfort with their present circumstance. To give you illustrations of this in the Old Testament, I would like to look at one text in particular, and we'll reference a few others, but one text in particular, Jeremiah chapter 31. So if you will turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. There's this beautiful future promise, despite the current circumstance of the Israelites. And the whole chapter of Jeremiah 31 is about this reversal future day where present mourning will be turned into a future kind of rejoicing. And I'm just going to read starting in verse 8 of Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, and this is God speaking, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant women and she who is in labor together, a great company and they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. 
For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. In these verses, you have the kind of sum and substance of what all of Jeremiah chapter 31 is talking about, which is the current, present weeping situation of Israel is going to one day be reconciled and vindicated. Now, when Jeremiah speaks, he's speaking prophetically about a future day of vindication, and that future day comes upon Israel in the, in, the, in the advent of Christ's death, burial, and ascension on high to the right hand of the Father. That is the day on which this begins to be realized, when the, Israels, when the Israelites begin to be vindicated, and ultimately that will work itself out in eternity uh, to come. But what you see is there's this line in verse 9 where it says, with weeping they shall come. And that would seem strange because in verse 8 is he, when he's telling us he's gathering them. In verse 8 is when he says he brings them from all around. And then it says, as they come forward, as they come together, when I gather them, they will come weeping and mourning. And the question is, well, why would they be weeping if they're being gathered together to be united with God? Why would they be in a state of mourning when they're being gathered together for their ultimate vindication? Why is that the case? And I think it, it spells out for us a good theology of what it means to weep and to mourn and to lament. And there are several things that you can weep and that you can mourn for and that you can lament about. Uh, first and foremost of those being, as the Israelites are doing here, they're, they're weeping and they're lamenting and they're mourning their national brokenness. They're recognizing that although they're being gathered together, that there's a state of unfaithfulness in their history that kind of walks with them through the generations. The Israelites are marked by not only being God's chosen people, but also consistently leaving their position as God's chosen people and instead pursuing false gods. So part of the reason why they might be weeping and why they might be mourning is because of the magnificent grace of God to once again gather them in despite their consistent lack, despite their consistent shortcoming. And so if you put those two things together, God's graciousness and their shortcomings, and you realize that he's once again gathering them in, it makes sense that on the way to being reconciled with God, on the way to being gathered in, that there's a mixture of both joy and sorrow. Sorrow for the past failures of the nation. Sorrow for their past uh, apostasy, for the past abandonment of God. So the Israelites are mourning as a, as a national group. They're mourning their unfaithfulness to God. There's other uh, terms that could be referred to as mourning or weeping in Scripture. Uh, one of them has to do with the personal mourning or the personal lament of our own sin. That's another reason why you could be in a state of weeping. In Ezekiel, for example, chapter 7, uh, verse 16, the day of God's wrath is upon the people. And it says that there's a certain group of people that is hiding from God's wrath because and in the day of God's wrath, they're weeping over their sins. They're mourning over the sins that they still have and they're still guilty of. And the reason they're weeping and mourning on the day of God's judgment is because they haven't wept and they haven't mourned about their sins before that time. They haven't repented of their sins before God's judgment. Instead, they waited for the day of God's judgment, and then they begin to weep and mourn and hide in the foothills. And God says in that chapter, Jeremiah, or sorry, in Ezekiel 7, that it's going to go very poorly for those people on that day. Now, what Luke is saying is, blessed are those who weep, not on that day. He said, blessed are those who weep now. Blessed are those who weep over their sin now, because on that day, they shall laugh. They shall be those who are going to be reconciled to God and who can uh, ultimately be vindicated before God because they already went through their season of mourning and weeping. They already lamented and mourned and repented of their sins. And so on the day when God comes, they can laugh and they can rejoice because they will be vindicated. 
So you have two then kind of considerations of what can happen if you're weeping. You could be weeping for, uh, as a national identity, the brokenness of the Israelites. They could weep for that. They could weep over their personal sin. Or as in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, uh, he weeps and he mourns and he has tears to share because of the uh, brokenness and the lack of obedience to God's law present on the earth. And that's in uh, Psalm 119, verses, uh, verse 136. You see the psalmist writing is lamenting and weeping over the fact that all the earth does not faithfully and dutifully obey God's laws. Obviously, he has Israel first and foremost in mind there, but he's got a national identity in mind as well of the whole earth, which is supposed to be obedient to God, which is not being obedient to God. And so we can, even as Christians today, we can weep and we can mourn over the fact that God's name isn't hallowed on this earth as it ought to be, that his laws aren't obeyed and commanded and followed as they were told to us. We can weep and we can mourn over the state of the world and its broken posture and the fact that it values things that God has told us to not value. And the fact that the world has looked at the values of Christians and said, we don't want those things. We're going to make up our own system. And we can weep over that because the whole world is in a state of disunity with God. And so we can weep not only over our own personal disunity with God, but also over the whole world's apostasy and walking away from its creator. That's a right kind of way to engage in mourning. So you can see that there's all kinds of levels that are at play when we talk about weeping. We can weep over many different number of things. It's not just one kind of thing that's in mind. And that's why Luke doesn't specify weeping. Even Matthew in his Beatitudes doesn't specify mourning. And the reason is because there's many things that you can mourn and you can lament over. I'll give you one more example from the New Testament chapters, uh, and that's gonna be out of 1 Peter chapter one, if you'll turn there with me as well. 1 Peter chapter one, This is Paul talking about mourning and weeping. And I just want to read verse 6 through 8 of 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter, writing to the early church, has these words of comfort to say. And he says that you can rejoice now, even though right now you're being tested by various trials, a great many number of trials that you face. And he says the reason you're being tested is to sift the genuineness of your faith. You're being tested to see if you will endure faithfully, obeying and holding fast to the commands of God. But he says you can rejoice in your current brokenness. You can rejoice in your current weeping and suffering because because you can be found in Christ Jesus on the day when he returns to vindicate his people. Because at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will see that although we didn't see him in this moment, we loved him and we held fast to him and we held fast to the confession. And therefore, you will be vindicated on that day. That's that kind of now and then language that Peter uses. All of that, again, around the idea of this current state of brokenness that is colored in or clarified by a future state of reconciliation. 
because of the future state of laughing, because we shall laugh one day, we know that we can weep now and we can mourn now. I think that's an important thing because if, if it was just being blessed for weeping, then really what Luke would have in mind is like a very therapeutic kind of mourning. That somehow mourning itself is going to clarify the problem. That somehow weeping in and of itself or just airing your dirty laundry itself is going to clarify the situation. But scripture does not think that weeping in and of itself or mourning in and of itself clarifies the situation. Scripture, in fact, always has to have in mind a future kind of vindication or else you're not really blessed if you weep. If you're not going to laugh in the future, then weeping now isn't all that much of a blessing because weeping now is just weeping now and forevermore. Because if you don't laugh one day, the weeping now doesn't make any sense. This is not some kind of modern psychology idea of weeping, that somehow if you get everything off your chest, if you think about your own sin long enough, and if you look at the brokenness around you long enough, that somehow that will itself work itself out. The whole hope for the Christian is on the future day of laughter. It's on the future day of reconciliation. And if that future day is true, then we can be sure that the present weeping is good and blessed, not because we're weeping, but because it's temporary, because it has a finite point, And then on the day when it is vindicated, we will be laughing. We will be rejoicing. We will be joyful. It's because of the laughter that the weeping is considered tolerable. Now, I want to look at a psalm that kind of spells that out. Uh, there's many psalms you can go to. Uh, the whole, in fact, there's many psalms in general that deal with the problem of weeping and mourning over sin, weeping and mourning over national brokenness. But I want to look to a psalm that's put in the Psalter in a place of rejoicing, and that's Psalm 126. And I just want to read that psalm together, and I want to point your attention to it. Also, Psalm 30 is a great candidate to read in these same terms. Uh, psalm, psalm 30 uh, is the one that says, you know, uh, there may be joy uh, in the morning because although there's pain in the night, there will be joy in the morning, right? That the Lord will put your pain to rest and give you joy in the future time. Psalm 126 says something very similar. This is part of the Psalms that's called the, the Psalms of Ascent, which means that these are Psalms that the Israelites would sing as they marched up to Jerusalem because it's a city on a hill. They would march up to the city and as they're walking up to the city, they would sing these songs. And many of them talk about the future restoration of Israel, the enthronement of God in Zion. And Psalm 126 says this. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we are like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams of the Negev, who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves in with him. Now the illustration that this psalm puts to us is the idea of planting a seed and sowing a harvest. And the idea is that if you go out reaping with tears, you will come in sowing this bountiful harvest. Now imagine how foolish it would be to say that simply sowing the seed itself is good. You don't need to collect the harvest. If you sow the seed in and of itself, that is therapeutic enough that you could solve your problems. And that's what it is like to weep without any future hope of rejoicing, without any future hope of laughter. But what the psalmist says instead is you sow 
You sow and then you reap. You put your tears into the ground and then you will reap a harvest on that future day. He who goes out weeping and bearing that seed for sowing will come home with shouts of joy. And then you get the full biblical picture of what it's like to be blessed. It's not being blessed because you're crying. It's being blessed because although you're crying, you have a future moment where you will be vindicated and you'll be able to laugh and you'll be able to be comforted. And all of that tears, all of that pain, all of that crying will make sense because Christ Jesus will restore all things to himself. Because the Israelites have this future expectation, they say that it's not a problem for us to cry right now because when the Lord restores the fortune of Zion, we will be those who are part of this group of people who laugh. That's the hope that the Israelites have in, this, in these Psalms. And that's still the hope for the Christian today that if we now weep, we shall have laughter. That there's some future point in history where we'll be able to laugh and be comforted. I think it's an important thing for us to know that the future hope that we have informs our present situation, our present circumstance. And when Jesus is giving these beatitudes, he's giving them with the expectation that we would know that. That we would know that it's because of the future thing that's coming that we have a present kind of assurance. You saw this in verse 20, the first beatitude, and he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is a now and a future reality. Because you have the kingdom of God, that future coming reality, you're blessed now if you're poor. Because there's a coming kingdom that will vindicate your poverty. You will be satisfied in the future, so your hunger now will be vindicated on that day. And you have a coming moment of peace and laughter and joy. And so therefore, if you weep now, you are still blessed because of the coming reality and the coming vindication of God. So all of the kinds of weeping that you can experience in Scripture, the corporate weeping of the people of God, the personal lament over sin, the lament over all of the brokenness in the world despite God's faithfulness, and the weeping as First Peter identifies it as just general suffering for the Christian, weeping over your brokenness and the fact that we are persecuted. All of that makes sense, not because the persecution itself is valuable, but because the vindication on the other end of that is valuable. That's the kind of thing that you need to hear if you're the early church, because you don't live in a place where society affirms you. Instead, all of society is trying to squelch out your Christian witness. And so instead of being vindicated, you feel like you're always on the negative end of the equation. You feel if you're somehow doing something wrong. And what God says through his son to his people, before they're experiencing any of that persecution, he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You will have a day in the future where laughter is your constant song rather than the weeping that it is now. And then that is clarified for us in verse 22 and 23, because what Jesus is going to do with this whole list of Beatitudes is he's going to spell out more in depth what all of them have in common in this kind of big summary statement. And he says in verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Now, that wouldn't make much sense, right, if you just stopped at verse 22. He said, blessed are you when people hate you. It would be strange for someone to say, blessed are you when people hate you. Blessed are you when they exclude you or when they revile you. You see, all of that doesn't make much sense. 
But until you read verse 23, then it starts to make sense because he says, rejoice in that day, meaning the day that you are being persecuted, and leap for joy. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. What makes sense in the present moment is clarified by the future reality. He said, blessed are you right now when people hate you, not because they hate you, but because they hate you on account of the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is King of all eternity. And when the Son of Man comes into his kingdom, and you are a citizen of that kingdom, and you've been reviled for being associated with him, guess what? On that day when he comes, all of the pain and the suffering and the current brokenness that you felt will be vindicated. It will make sense. As he says in Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. It's because of that coming reality, that expecting hope, that the present suffering makes sense. Christians don't suffer with no purpose in mind. In fact, to do so is foolish. To suffer with no future hope is foolish. That's why it's the future hope that helps us with our present joy. It's the future expected reality that clarifies or helps us to interpret and understand our present situation. Verse 22 is all about persecution. It says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now that clarifying statement, on account of the Son of Man, is an important part to the puzzle because you can be reviled or hated or spurned because of your own sinfulness. You could do all those things. You could be reviled. You could be hated simply because you yourself are a person who uh, is deserving of that kind of judgment because you behave in such a way as to bring upon the hatred of other people. That is possible. That's why Jesus clarifies the statement by saying, on account of the Son of Man, if you've been scorned, if you've been hated, if you've been reviled on account of the Son of Man, that is the kind of scorn and hatred that counts for something in the future. It's not good just to make everyone upset with you. It's not a good or a noble or somehow a, a, a righteous thing to do to make everyone upset with you. That's just foolish. But if it's on account of the Son of Man, if it's because you love him and you keep his commandments and you value his word, if that's the reason why people exclude you, if that's the reason why people hate you, if that's the reason why they've decided to spit all kinds of evil against your name and to disassociate with you and to break fellowship with you, then you're counted as one of these blessed people. And why would Jesus say that about the people who are hated and scorned? It's because they belong to a future kingdom that is as sure as this present world and even more sure than this present world. And it's coming. And when that kingdom comes in, all of the rest of temporary history will vanish and only that future kingdom reality will matter. Jesus is saying that you're blessed to be counted as part of that kingdom. And if the current world despises you because you're part of that kingdom, then that's okay. Because that kingdom is coming and it's more real than the present one. I don't know how many of you guys have seen uh, military movies, how many of you watch them, but one of the common themes in military movies is this idea of someone who's stuck behind enemy lines. You might have seen old movies that have to do with this theme, like Saving Private Ryan, or you might have uh, seen like a more modern version of this in the movie Lone Survivor. 
uh, where one of the whole themes of the movie is that they're trapped behind a place where they can't go. They're, they're trapped away from their people, away from their nation. And the, the whole point of the movie is the question, are they going to be rescued? Are they going to be drawn out of that reality and into their safe haven and their safe harbor? And the whole point of it is the movie would have a very tragic ending if they were never rescued from that dangerous place. If they were always stuck behind enemy lines and that was how the movie concluded, that would be a very sad ending to those movies. But what happens in most cases is right towards the pinnacle, right towards the climax of the movie, what happens is they're rescued in a really powerful and a really mighty way by their nation, by their people. And it's because they've been rescued, it's because they've been taken back into their people that we can say that all of the pain and all the suffering that they endured the whole time they were behind enemy lines was vindicated. It was worthwhile because the people came back for them, because they were rescued, because they were ransomed from their situation, now we can say that their suffering was somehow worth it. And if we can say that about a temporary kingdom and a temporary nation and sometimes very embellished fictional movies, how much more should we be able to say that about the real reality of a kingdom that is beyond this earth, that has no imperfections in it, and has a king who is perfect and eternal and above all? And if you can be counted as part of that kingdom, you can be vindicated for your suffering in this moment because on that day, he will vindicate all of the suffering that you've endured. He will say that if you are counted with his people, with his broken kingdom now, that on that day, he will richly reward you for all of your suffering. The reality of persecution is a present reality in the church. The reality of persecution is something that has spelled out the whole history of the church and it will spell out the whole future of the church until Jesus is fully and finally reigning and has put death to death under his feet. In verse 23, we're, we're made uh, clear on that. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. If your reward is not great in heaven, you don't have reason to currently rejoice and you're not blessed when people hate you. But if your reward is great in heaven, if there's a coming kingdom, then all of these things come to pass. All of these things are true. In verse 23, you have the only command of the entire section of Beatitudes. He says, rejoice in that day. Now, in that day isn't referring to a future day. It's referring to the same day that you are being persecuted in. And if you look at the pattern of the Beatitudes, you see, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. And then verse 23 says, rejoice in that day. In that day is a poetic way of him spelling out the same idea as the now. He's just summarizing the statement, so he's subbed out a different word. But he's in that day still refers to the now. Rejoice now and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And that's a command for Christians. The command is to rejoice in our current circumstance, despite all of the pain and all of the suffering in the current circumstance. The way Paul would say it is, I do not count this light momentary affliction as worth the weight of being compared to eternal glory. I don't even, I don't even put them on the same playing field. So I can rejoice now in my current suffering, in my current broken body, in my current sinful state, I can rejoice because it's not worth being compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. And if Paul can say that about his body and his reality, he goes before all of us in what we should be able to say about our realities as well. We can rejoice in our current brokenness and our current frustrations, 
not because somehow the current circumstances demand rejoicing, but because if we really believe in the future hope, we will rejoice now. If we really believe that the future kingdom is coming, it colors in all of the experiences that we have and it allows for rejoicing. The idea of suffering is an idea that is so core and so integral to the Christian life that almost all of the authors of scripture talk about it. Jesus promises that the world hated me and it will hate you. He promises that people will deliver their own family members up to be persecuted and the whole world will hate you on account of my name. Jesus promises that his disciples will experience suffering. They do it in all of the synoptic gospels. Paul goes further than Jesus and doesn't even say that it's sure. He actually commends it. He said, blessed are you because you are counted to suffer for his sake and also to believe in his name. He puts the suffering of this current life on par with the blessing of being counted just to believe in Christ. Blessed are you because you believe in Christ and you can also suffer for his namesake. Those two things are so true for Paul, he actually commends suffering as like a, a, a beautiful thing to believers. He says we can rejoice, not just for our belief, but because we've been also put, put aside for suffering in this life. And he wouldn't say that if he didn't believe that there was a future kingdom coming because his body is as good as gone by the time he's writing most of his letters. His back is so scarred and so marked up from all of the beatings he's endured in his life. He walks with probably a heavy limp because of all the time he spent in prison and in shackles and in ships and being thrown out of cities and stoned. But he says to the believers when he writes them a letter of encouragement in Philippians, blessed are you because you know, you've been counted to suffer for the sake of his name. It's been put aside for you to suffer. So Jesus promises that his believers will experience suffering. Paul commends suffering to the believers. And then Peter says, Jesus promised it, Paul commends it, and I'm going to tell you not, not just to completely expect it to happen. He says, expect it. And I want to look at those verses where Peter talks about that, because I think those are some of the most, good, the, some of the most clear verses on this topic. 1 Peter chapter 4. So we're going to draw out of that same letter we visited earlier, 1 Peter chapter 4 this time. And Peter, when he writes this letter, is writing under really the beginning of the heavy Roman persecutions that the church will face. And this is pretty early on to the, into those persecutions. But the Christians have begun to be an, enough of a threat to the Roman Empire where they've decided that not only is it good enough for the Jewish synagogue to kill them in mass, but also the Roman people are going to ostracize and put to death and kill the Christians. And Peter, writing in that context, says these words to say, verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin and the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Peter's words of encouragement to the church are first and foremost, don't be surprised. Secondly, you serve a good God who's coming back for you. And thirdly, be sure that you're suffering for the right reasons. He says that if you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, no benefit. But if you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer as a Christian, then it is worth blessing, worth honor, worth glory, because you suffer for the sake of Christ's name. He says, actually, in that same uh, section, you are blessed, verse 14. Same wording that Jesus uses. And it's no doubt that Jesus, when he's hearing, uh, when he's preaching, Peter is hearing the words and he's internalizing them. And then as he lives them out, then he passes on that teaching to the church in his letter. And he says that if you suffer for the sake of Christ's name, Jesus told me on the mountain, you will be blessed. And I'm going to commend that teaching to you as well. And Peter says the same thing here that Jesus says. Jesus promises the suffering is going to come. The disciples live that out for their whole lives. And the ones who make it and are able to pass on their teaching about it in their, pen, in their penmanship and in their letters, almost all of them commend suffering as something to be expected, to be endured faithfully, and also something that we can find great hope and great rejoicing in. Not rejoicing after the suffering has passed, rejoicing in the suffering. That's what marks Christian suffering as different from other people. A- anyone can suffer. A Christian, though, should be marked by suffering with joy, should be marked by suffering with a kind of hopeful expectation that colors in the whole experience. Christians can suffer, Christians can weep, Christians can mourn, but all of it has to be done in the vein of joy. All of it should be done under the expression or the clarity of the joy that we have in the future. If we are sure of the coming reality, the present moment of suffering is clarified by that. It's interpreted by the future. And that's important for us to know because we don't suffer like unbelievers suffer. We have to suffer like Christians, like those who are expecting suffering, who know it's going to come, who aren't surprised when it comes, and who actually can be most gracious witnesses when the suffering comes upon us. The early uh, Romans would say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. No matter how quickly you kill Christians, it seems like their blood is like seed and then it springs up more churches and more witnesses because their testimony into their death is so sure, it's so rock solid, that it's actually a better testimony than if we just let them preach. They don't learn their lesson, they keep trying to kill the Christians. But there's something true about that, that Christians can suffer and even die, and in their death they can be vindicated. That's, that's a real thing that Christians can experience. I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, like Spartan culture and history, uh, there's, I, I, I happen to like those ancient cultures, Sparta and uh, the Vikings, and all of these warrior cultures had this belief or this idea that if you died in glory and if you died in battle, that this was somehow a vindicating thing for you, that you could die graciously and you could be accepted into the afterlife. If you're the Vikings in Valhalla, you could be accepted and you could rejoice in your death. And it could be this thing that you long for and this thing that you look for in life, that you want to die in battle on the field and somehow that vindicates you. But the reality is that is an empty hope. As good of a sentiment as that is, it's an empty hope. Because if you die on the battlefield, you just die. But if you die as a Christian, bearing witness about the kingdom to come, you are welcomed into the arms of a savior who is waiting for you. That's a real reality. That's a sure hope. It's not like the kind of teaching that the Spartans and the Vikings do where they they teach these things out of necessity so that their warriors will go into battle and will die valiantly. 
As Christians, we say these things not because they're nice to say. We say these things because we believe them to be true. We believe them to be real. We don't think that God somehow has passed over us and is, is hoping that we work these things out. And so we have to come up with really powerful testimonies so that we can spur this thing on forward. Christianity is actually advanced by the suffering of the people of God. It's actually when the church is most persecuted is when it tends to rise and grow the quickest throughout history. And that's counterintuitive to most of our modern understanding. We tend to think that if the government doesn't touch the church, that if the culture likes the church, that if we're accepted and we're glorified by people, that that is the prime real estate that we want in the culture in order to grow the church. But church history says that that's not true. And even if you look to our own nation, you know that that's not true. Because when the church was most accepted by the culture in our nation is when the church herself withered and, and died and became this kind of dead, dry, lifeless existence of a thing with many false people in the ranks and a huge dilution of doctrine and a huge dilution of truth. And now we're seeing this swing away from that and where the culture is actually beginning to persecute the church again and beginning to say out loud that we don't like the ideas of the church. And in fact, we can fire you from your job if you profess to hold true to these things. That these things that the church professes can now be considered hate speech or, or, or false things that are to be believed. And we, we can say that that's actually swinging in a, in a favorable direction for the church. It's actually going to be going better for us when that's the reality. Because what happens is you, you, you clean out all the, all the fat from the ranks. And you get only the people who are there who actually believe the testimony. And then you have a very effective, a very vital church. In the early church, if you profess Christ, that could be your life. That could be that you were turned over by your family to the state and you were burned. Or you were crucified. Or you were killed for being a rebel. Or you were cast out of the synagogue and you didn't know your family anymore. And I think that that's a, a really positive kind of thing. That persecution has a level of sifting to it that we lack in the current church. And that sifting is coming once again, and I think that's not something that we should be scared of. That's something that Jesus promises, that's something Paul recommends, and it's something Peter tells us to expect. So we shouldn't be surprised by it, and we shouldn't be scared of it. Because we have a, a sure foundation in the coming reality of the kingdom. And if, you, if, you, if you've lived in this world for any length of time, you know that to profess Christian doctrine and also to hold fast to Christian doctrine will put you on the outside of many groups very quickly. Many of you might have lived this out and experienced this. You might not have yet experienced this, but it's coming, I promise. And if you are around the world enough, you're gonna to begin to realize that the world actually does not like Christians very much. And that's good. The world should be able to distinguish us from them and they should recognize us as different, so much so that they should say that there's, there's such a difference between these people that we either have to break fellowship with them or we have to join them. Those are the only two possibilities. But when the Christian church is at its weakest is when it tries to blend in with the world and look indistinguishable from the world. And when that becomes a reality, the church begins to die and the culture begins to prevail. And so we should stop as a church trying to blend in with the world, trying to pretend to mix with its cultures and with its values. Because when we do that, we are, we are going against what Jesus says is a blessed kind of situation. We should stand independent and apart from the world so much so that the world has to, sit, has to decide what to do with Christians. So much so that the world has to decide what to do with Jesus Christ. That we put the testimony of the gospel and our lives on display and we make the world make a decision one way or the other. And if they make a decision one way and it's a negative decision, we who are persecuted for, their, for the sake of our testimony are considered blessed. So it's a good thing. 
that if it goes the other way, then we save the souls of those people who we've just witnessed to and we've just uh, lived out our Christian faith with. And so both of those are positives. Both of those are huge blessings that we can experience. What you don't want to do is you don't want to blend it so much that you don't force anyone to make a decision, that you're just tolerant and comfortable with everybody because there's nowhere in here where that seems to be the case. Jesus says, if the world hates you, don't, don't be surprised because it hated me first. And if you're of me, if you're my people, I promise you it will hate you. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. So we shouldn't be surprised either when people hate us and they scorn us and they mock us and they revile us for the sake of Jesus' name. Now, how can we find a, a present encouragement or, a, or an encouragement in our suffering, if you will, despite all of the circumstance around us? How can we find hope and faithful endurance in all of those things? I think the, the core of it is what I tried to distill in the title, which is there's a future hope so we can have a present joy. There is a future hope so we can have a present kind of rejoicing. But I think we can spell that out in, in three different lanes. The first of those lanes is we have the testimony of all the saints who have come before us. We have the testimony of all the people who have come before us in the faith. And so we can draw encouragement from them. I want to uh, just turn to a text in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 11. You might know this if you've uh, ever read your Bible. Hebrews is very confusing. And then you get to this text in chapter 11. You're like, oh, I know some of these people. And you, and you can begin to be, uh, I don't know, spurred along to finish out the book. But in Hebrews 11, you have what's called the Hall of Faith is what they've named this chapter. And I just want to read a handful of verses. I'm just going to read verse 23, and then I want to skip to verse 32 and read through the end. But in verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that helps to clarify a lot of what Jesus is saying here. Moses does not choose the fleeting pleasures of this world. Instead, he wants to be identified with the people of God. I want to skip over to verse 32. There's a whole bunch of faithful testimony, and if you want to read Hebrews 11, I highly commend it to you this week. Verse 32 says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women would receive back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword and they went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, in verse 38, I think is my favorite, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Of whom the world was not worthy. And I think there's an omission there from the author of Hebrews that we need to pick up on. The world is not a good barometer for how good or how bad the church is doing. The more antagonistic the world becomes, it's actually a, a very positive sense of how well the church is doing because the church is, is being recognized for what it is, which is not of the world. In the same way that your body will attack a foreign part of it, and it will attack it and send antibodies and all kinds of things to eliminate that foreign threat, so the world does with the church. The world does that exact same thing with the church, and so we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. And so the author of Hebrews says, all of these people 
are to be commended for their faith, for their endurance, for the, for the fact that they suffered. Verse 38 says, of whom the world was not worthy. The world doesn't recognize the kind of faithful people that it has in it, and instead it kills them, it flogs them, it beats them, it scorns them, and it throws them out. But these people all follow in after Christ, who was crucified by the world. We have this, I think, fictional idea in our mind today that if Jesus were to somehow come back right now, he would be accepted like Gandhi. We, everyone would love him. We'd be throwing him parades. All the churches would, would rally around him. He'd be arm in arm with everybody. He wouldn't condemn anybody. He would just be there with the world. Everyone would love him. But we forget the fact that in his own day, after he launches his public ministry, three years later, he's hanging on a cross, scorned by the very people who came out to hear him preach. Jesus... If he came back today, it would happen just as it did the first time. If he was to come back for the first time right now and to begin to reveal himself to us, to make himself known, to show the mercy and the love and the care of God, all of that predicates the fact that Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are sinful. And so we have to recognize that if Jesus comes back today, if he, or if he came back today for the first time, if this was how he revealed himself, the exact same, the exact same thing would happen. The world would hate him and eventually Jesus would be killed. And so we, sh we shouldn't pretend like Jesus is Gandhi or like Jesus is someone who's going to be accepted broadly by the world. The world already had its shot at accepting Jesus and broadly crucified him. And so as a church who are representatives or ambassadors of Christ, we shouldn't expect a different kind of fate. We should expect the exact same fate that Jesus endured for us to endure. And if we don't, that's great, but we shouldn't expect anything more. The kind of persecution that Jesus suffers is the kind of persecution that is to be commended by the early Christians. In Acts chapter 5, they're beaten and they're flogged and they're told to shut up and they're sent away by the synagogue. And they, they run away leaping and rejoicing for they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I think we need to recapture that. I think that's part of one of the blessings of reading these Beatitudes is the fact that we can recapture the fact that we should rejoice and leap for joy because of suffering, because of persecution. And if you've endured suffering or persecution for the sake of Christ's name, even on a small scale, you haven't been killed for it, but you've endured some kind of social ostracization for the sake of Christ, I think you can read this text and you can say, yeah, I, I do think that's true. Because the more you give up for Christ, the more kinds of value you're placing on the relationship that you have with him. You're, you're testifying to yourself over and over and over again by the decisions that you have to make to hold fast, to stay true, to endure. And as you do that, you're making value statements about the thing that you claim to believe. If Christianity was comfortable, if it was an easy thing to do and it didn't require much sacrifice, then no one would consider it valuable. But the fact that people make decisions, life or death decisions for it, shows us about the kind of value that it is. It shows us that because the, the apostles were willing to almost all of them die, for the sake of the gospel that they preached. We know that they at least considered it valuable. And we can have that same kind of testimony to the world, that the world threatens to throw us away, threatens to get rid of our careers, threatens to kick us out of society because of what we preach. That's a testimony to the world. And we testify about how valuable we think God is, whether we hold fast to the testimony or whether we abandon the testimony and instead joy league with the world. If we're willing to uh, accommodate the world for the sake of Christ, we're testifying that we actually don't believe this message that much. We only like it so far as you like it. But instead, I think the more powerful testimony is to hold fast, to know what hills you're supposed to die on as a Christian, and to just die there. To just go and to hold fast to the testimony we've been delivered, and to just faithfully suffer for the sake of Christ's name. 
And not to suffer as the Gentiles do, or as the pagans do, where, who weep and who, who mourn and who make this big display of their suffering, but instead who we can rejoice in our suffering. We can rejoice and we can leap for joy, not because of the current circumstance, but because of the coming reward. We have the, the past testimony of the saints. We have the present encouragement of the church, the local church, faithful witnesses to Christ, who, who looks around and who says that, oh, you've suffered, I can draw encouragement from that. I've suffered, you can draw encouragement from that. We're all in this together. We can encourage one another and strengthen one another and pray for one another. So you have the past encouragement. You have that present encouragement of the local church. And I think the, the biggest one, the biggest piece of the puzzle, you have that future coming hope. You have that future hope that is sure. And if you have that, you don't actually need all these other things. If you have that future hope, you have the most important piece of the puzzle. And since we've been given that, and since we hold that to be true, we should suffer like nobody else. We should suffer with joy, with rejoicing, with uh, a great deal of endurance because Jesus has died for us, because he's given up the greatest thing in the world for us, the great, greatest thing in all the universe he's given. God has given us his only son to make us right with him. And we should count it worthwhile to suffer for his sake because what he gave us is way more worth than what anything we could give him. And so we have to say that we are evil. We were rescued from the world. We are now citizens of God. We've given up our former identity. We have this primary identity as sons and daughters of the king. And because we've given up all those former things, we've confessed our sins, we believe Jesus can save us from our sins, then he has done so. Now Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, hold fast to my word, obey it. And as we do that, we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us because we're not citizens of this kingdom anymore. We're citizens of a different kingdom. We have a different primary identity that sometimes moves us into awkward spaces. And we should be okay with that. Because as Christians, we're told to expect it. The Savior himself promises it. And we have all kinds of testimony in the, in the scriptures that attest to the same reality. So I think all of that is an encouragement to us. I think that uh, this, these texts have been greatly beneficial to me this week in thinking through how to suffer in, into the coming future that we're no doubt going to experience. And so I think that uh, as, we, as we read through this, as you meditate on this church, I would, just, uh, I would ask you to pray over these things and make them uh, more real to yourself, to your own heart. Because I think we've been in a very safe and a very comfortable place in America for quite a long time, and in the West, really, um, as a church. And I think that that's been for the worse for the church. And so we, should, we shouldn't uh, scorn or, or be afraid of the coming persecution. Uh, we should instead just pray for faithful endurance. Just, just hold fast to the testimony and, and not revile it, because that's what we're told to already to expect in Scripture. So would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your word for us this evening. Lord, we thank you that in Christ, all of your promises are yes and amen. We thank you that we have assurance through the promised Holy Spirit. We have assurance through the testimony found in Scripture. And we can have confidence in the coming kingdom. Lord, we know that without all of these things and your spirit working in us to encourage us, to sustain us, to keep us, Lord, that we would surely abandon the testimony. So Lord, we pray that you would keep us. Lord, please hold your church safely in your arms. Keep her and strengthen her. Lord, help, help her to not consider it painful to suffer for your sake. Lord, give us a right kind of view on these things. Give us a heavenly view of these things as we try to live these things out in accordance with your word. Lord, we thank you uh, for all of your testimony and all of your truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen.